Hello and welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we explore life in the time of Grant Morrison across the DC universe and beyond. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. The eternal return, PJ. Did we ever actually leave? Uh, sometimes it feels like we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, given that we the first for the first time ever we didn't actually sign off on an episode we didn't finish no it. no we didn't it was we were having too many technical issues and we kind of just gave up ah uh, it was like quitting heroes don't quit but like visionaries do and it was just like ugh yeah it was the world was against us that day it heroes occasionally done. retreat and regroup that's what we did indeed it was very strategic um yeah uh, and we came back stronger which is we we are now the uh, the electric blue to the to the OG of this episode. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Which is how I choose to think about everything, <laughs> whether it's electric blue or not. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I think most things could be improved by being slightly electric blue. I agree. Um, so we 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 apologise, everyone, because we we were we were very excited to dive into Ultramarine Corps. Mm. Um, believe me, you know, no one could possibly be more disappointed than we were. Uh, that things didn't work out, but but we're back and we're going to do it properly this time. Hopefully, hopefully. Oh, oh God, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Fingers crossed. Touch wood. All that stuff. Hubris, hubris. Um. So yeah, so um, we did a fair degree of um, preamble, uh, kind of last, you know, kind of episode, half mm-hmm. episode. Um, given, but you know, there's always slightly more preamble, uh, to be had. Um. And if I can kind of remember where we were, PJ, I believe we were talking about the knight and squire. I, th- I think so, yes. And Morrison's kind of abiding love for these two characters. Yes. And also how, PJ, they are both in a weird Morrisonian way, uh, kind of homages and references to classic British comic characters. Should yes. we expand upon that? Yes, we should. Do you want to start with the knight or the squire? Um, let's start with the knight. Okay, so PJ, um, if I were to use the words general jumbo to you, what 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 would you say? I would say I loved those stories when I was getting the Beano book at the end of the year for a few years in the early nineties. Okay, and 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 I think I know what you might be saying, PJ. But what? Okay, so the Beano, classic British comic, uh been running for decades very much like a kind of post well actually was it pre-world war ii when yeah it yeah i think so i want to say oh when was it because i think didn't it have its 80th anniversary recently a year oh, or can, two ago i can believe that yeah there was definitely they released a special for it that our mutual friend sarah millman had contributed to <laughs> um, yeah she did <laughs> so yeah i can't remember I want to say it might be the 80th anniversary, but maybe two years ago. So, well, yeah. very, very long running, uh, kind of like a British institution. Mm. Uh, in I don't know, in a, in a, in the same way that like I don't know, the UK never really did or got superheroes. Um, obviously, there's a few outliers, but generally speaking, British comics were were more kind of what would you call them, PJ? Like funnies. You had yeah, you your your funnies, so your your gag strips. Um and then there were British war comics as well and Oh god, yeah. Things like that, yeah. Oh god, yeah, because I remember my um my dad had some old um 
Victor annuals, mm. uh, which were, again, weirdly, like, I thought as a kid reading them, because they're all World War II stories, I somehow thought they were kind of like contemporary to World War II, but no, they were very much like post-World War II, but telling heroic stories set during that time period. I think some of them are still going, to be honest. Wow, yeah. The war never ends. No. <laughs> well, depends who you speak to, doesn't it? But they were all, um, you know, I guess the format would be like black and white, very, uh, very cheap paper stock, Hmm. Um, almost kind of like newspaper print sort of thing, and uh, and then you know you just have like always kind of one page, maybe a two page little strips of just kind of like gags and silly characters and puns and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that by the nineties they'd gone full color, but I think General Jumbo really precedes that. Like, I don't know the era he was in the comic. But that's very much hearkening back to a boy's own adventure type well, thing, isn't it? This is what I wanted to bring up, PJ. Like, in among all the Beano characters, wh- why did you like General Jumbo? I think because when I first stumbled across him, I was so baffled. Like, <laughs> my first encounter with General Jumbo would have been the Beano book 1992. Wow. I think they just call it like the annual or something now, but back in the day, it was the Beano book. And it was just like the end of the year. And it wasn't strips from the comic. They'd go all out and produce longer sort of specials for this big, chunky, annual-sized book. Mm-hmm. And it was you'd get all the current Beano characters, and then there'd be a couple of strips here and there which threw back to Beano history, characters who weren't appearing in the modern comic anymore. And one of them was this General Jumbo strip, which I first came and I was like, what is this doing in here? This isn't... What is this? Because it and was so different to the yeah. stuff around it, wasn't it? Yeah, and it wasn't... It's not a gag strip. It was a, just a story about this kid who had, like, a radio-controlled army and he used it to fight crime. It was borderline superheroes. Yeah. And I, I think that's why my heart kind of soared every time I read it. Um, but, yeah, it was like... And I guess it would appeal to... Uh, I'm trying to think of the context, but like, you know, if you were a kid growing up in like the latter half of the 20th century in the UK and like you, I don't know, entertainment may have been scarce, but like, I don't know. I know like uh, model aircraft kits, model mm. kind of like uh, tanks and that sort of thing were very popular. My dad used to collect them. And I think the gimmick was it was like, what if that, but they were all actual um, weapons of war, mm. but tiny. And and so your little kind of model army could come to life and fight on your behalf. Yeah, I loved it. I thought yeah. it was really cool. Yeah, same. And I I I started really looking forward to the Beano book every at the end of every year because I knew I would get a new General Jumbo adventure. And I don't know if they were new ones in the Beano book because they were still drawn very much in that very old style. Mm. So I don't know if they were maybe reprints or new stories for the Beano book. But yeah, they were great. I have a vivid memory of, I, I guess this was very much the, uh, you know, the equivalent of General Jumbo's, I don't know, Final Crisis or something like that. But I remember vividly a panel where I think like his rival got hold of his own remote control army. Yes, and, I remember that because General yeah. Jumbo's was like a wrist mounted thing and this kid had a backpack version. Yes, yeah. And they were they were like battling. It was like this one kind of like epic panel of like these two kids like... I don't know, pressing their various like remote controls and then like these these two armies just absolute absolutely tearing each other apart. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's funny what sticks with you. <laughs> 
And they also had uh, Billy the Cat. Do you remember that? Uh, Billy the Cat. Vaguely. It was different because it was drawn like a... Well, I, sorry, I don't want to say like real comic book, but you know what I mean? It wasn't like gag-style humour. Like the artwork wouldn't have looked out of place in, say, a Marvel or DC comic book. Um, mm. But it was about a kid who was a superhero, just getting flat out like Batman-like vigilante. Um, and he wore like a kind of black kind of suit and kind of like a converted motorcycle helmet, but with like cat eyes drawn on it. Okay. And he'd like leap across rooftops and, and, and kind of like fight crime, but in a, in a, in a very kind of like, uh, well, no one's going to get shot in this comic, you know what I mean? Like in a, in a kind of like a safe kind of way, but those kind of rare strips that, I enjoyed the gag stuff, but like those rare strips, which were a bit more superhero-y, had a bit more of a plot. When they turned up, I'd absolutely love them. I don't think I ever came across Billy the Cat. I've just Googled him and yeah, he wasn't in any of the Beano books I was collecting. Um, Maybe or... he was a dandy character. No, he uh, no, he was in the Beano, according to this. First appeared in 1967. Uh, and then... Was in the Beano annuals from 2003 to 2008, but also 69 to 75. Oh, he was in the Dandy as well. He did cross over to the Dandy. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't, who's not familiar with like Beano and Dandy, they were kind of like the Marvel and DC of the UK, um, but may have also just been owned by the same company. They were, yeah, yeah, they were. Um, Yeah. What was it called? Oh. You would just get like a different cast of characters in one comic to the other, and I think occasionally they do crossovers and stuff like that. Yeah, DC Thompson, that's it. There yeah, we go. Because I remember a um, Calamity James strip in the Beano where he got drop kicked into Dandyville instead of Beano right. Town, and Desperate Dan had to punch him back at the end of the strip so he wouldn't wreck Dandyville. Okay, so this is a good this is a good segue, PJ. So talk going from like the vaguely superheroic, more realistic comics from the Beano and Dandy. Um, how would you describe their many, I don't know, is mascots the word? Like, they're kind of like mischievous children archetype? I mean, you know, that was, certainly for the Beano, that was kind of the main thing. You had Dennis the Menace, you had Minnie the Minx, you had Roger the Dodger, all in <laughs> in the Beano. The Dandy had a couple. I think Beryl the Peril was a Dandy character, um, and... Uh, cuddles and dimples the mischievous babies but yeah and they had like a kind of in the same way that dc has kind of led with the symbol on chest and cape archetype um these characters all basically had different colored jumpers or yeah. like a sweater so the, the the british dennis for menace famously had like red and black stripes Minnie the minx was like his kind of distaff counterpart um Roger the Dodger was like blue and black check. Oh, he was red and black check, I think. Was it, it was red, and red and black? Yeah, yeah. Ah, right. Yeah, I'm getting that wrong already. Um, and again, the the kind of weapon of choice for these kind of mischievous kids, who again, skied out as characters in like the 30s and 40s, uh, was kind of like a, a slingshot, like a, like a, a kind of catapult. Yeah. Which yeah. leads us neatly to the squire. Well, I was going to say there was one superhero character in the Dandy who, when the Dandy ended, then moved over to the Beano in 2012, Banana Man. Oh, good grief, Banana Man. (laughs) 
Fung's story, PJ, uh, one of the most surreal experiences of my life was at an MCM London Comic-Con several years ago where I believe it was a stag do had come to Comic-Con. And on Sunday afternoon, I saw a very, very drunk banana man samurai (laughs) surrounded by a group of very drunk Spider-Men who I have to assume were his posse wrestling with security, getting into a full-on brawl as they were kind of like escorted from the premises. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was very fun. I was just, I was sitting drinking a coffee. It was very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, so Banana Man, he could like eat a banana and then he'd become a superhero. Yeah, whenever little Eric eats a banana, he becomes Banana Man. And he had a, even had an animated series in the 80s. Which I think, if I remember, kind of gave me nightmares as a kid. <laughs> I think there was something kind of weird about it that I didn't like as a child. But yeah, he's still going in the Beano. That was bordering on being like a kind of public service announcement in like a post-war Britain. It was like, eat bananas, get your potassium, (laughs) fight rickets. But but then the villain was Apple Man, so don't eat apples. Oh God, yeah, yeah. It was probably some kind of like, maybe maybe like they had stocks in like, uh, they had shares in like uh, banana importing or something. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so, so Morrison being, you know, being Morrison takes these to, I guess, silly obscure to a wider audience, but takes these kind of archetypes from British comics and creates Knight and Squire, the modern Knight and Squire, who are inspired by General Jumbo and, well, anyone, like Minnie the Minx or Beryl the Peril. Like, Mm. uh, literally, the Squire's real name is Beryl Hutchinson. So, (laughs) and her her kind of, like, outlandish, colourful costume is... uh, is is very much inspired by those characters. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's Mor- nuts that that is because they they bear very little resemblance to the old school knight and squire from the golden age, don't they? So it's- oh, very little. And I mean, like, and um, you know, I, I just find it bizarre that, like, as we touched on last episode, like the amount of appearances that Cyril and Beryl. <laughs> The Nighting Squire will go on to make in Morrison's Batman comics. Yeah. Morrison's spoken quite openly about their affection for these characters and how they would love to do a series of them. Um, and I just find it bizarre that they it all began with one tiny little cameo mm-hmm. yeah, at the end of the original Ultramarine Corps story in yep. JLA. That's, yep. their, that's their first appearance. It's insane. <laughs> yep. Oh, the things they spun off from that little tiny cameo. Um, I was re I was rereading Batman Incorporated the other day, kind of mm. as research for this, and um, it's 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 a it's a bit of a slightly scatterbrained comic overall. It's a it's a bit it's a bit left, right, and center, but I love some of the creativity in it. And Morrison adds another kind of wrinkle to the Nighting Squire mythology by briefly cap- showing a 1980s British superhero team which features the original knight, a.k.a. Percy Sheldrake, mm. who was in the, uh, oh, was it the International Club of Heroes? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the Batman of Many Nations or whatever it was, All Nations, something like that, wasn't it? Yes, and, oh God, and Morrison being Morrison, even like for this little kind of five-page cameo, can't help but throwing in a bunch of references to British 80s comics. <laughs> so that team is, if I think it, it's uh, the original Knight, uh, a made-up character called Mr. Albion, 
who's okay. like a who's like a kind of Saint George's Cross uh, jingoistic kind of nationalistic hero. Yeah, the Iron Lady, who is a uh, ABC Warriors inspired mechanical woman, right? So, like something out of 2000 AD. Uh, Captain Carnation, who's based on Luther Arkwright by Brian Talbot. Oh yes, yeah. And also Fader, who's like a kind of pop star superhero, who is themselves based on Morrison's own Zenith superhero, mm. created for 2000 AD. This is for a five-page throwaway bit, PJ. Yeah, but, you know, you can't help but think that Morrison is every five-page throwaway bit could lead to something else down the line. <laughs> Somebody stop Morrison. Their, their, their kind of relentless reign of creativity must end. <laughs> Anyway, so sorry, this is very off topic, but like, I, I just want to kind of get it on record that Morrison loves his characters, and I think I kind of love Cyril and Beryl mm. as well. They just yeah. seem ve- they just seem like very nice people, very amiable people whenever they turn up. It's it's bizarre how this is sort of billed as a sequel to the Ultramarines story from JLA, and of the Ultramarines, Knight and Squire seem to be the ones we spend the most time with, even though they weren't <laughs> part of the Ultramarines in the original story. Now, and you do wonder, what would a... When this comic came out, uh, which was going to be, I think as you said, PJ, like a kind of JLA variety hour sort of thing, like a lots of different tales, lots of different creators. Yeah, each story arc would be a different creative team. Um, and like the only other one I've, I've still got is they did a two-part prestige format one, Cold Steel, where the JLA build mech robots to go and fight kaiju or something that's okay nuts. okay wow uh, but but yeah so that i think there there were a lot there was rotating core so obviously morrison and mcginnis all-star team launch it and then every story arc and, and i think that you know creators could do like anything from a two to six seven part story in it jeez louise so so if you're a big fan of jla maybe a big fan of morrison morrison's jla even maybe you're a big fan of the ultramarine core and you go, oh, wow, Morrison's back. And the Ultramarine Corps, it's going to be great. And then you pick it up, and it is almost a Knight and Squire story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think you're thinking, PJ? I think you're thinking, well, I'll give issue two a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Morrison, you you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, PJ, I mean, um, we've talked about Ultramarine Corps. Is that, is that all the setup we need at this point? The only thing, so that we don't derail the actual story, is um, obviously the the book opens with an Ultramarine Corps fact file from uh, JLA Secret Files and Origins 4? 3? 2004. They started doing them by year instead of an issue number. And that sort of debuts the new look for Warmaker 1, which I don't like as much, because instead of just having the full face black mask red circle that's half his face and then they've stuck like a power rangers style mouth and chin underneath it <laughs> i i i would say yes no I, I agree with you there pj um i i i'm glad that they didn't change 4d mm-hmm. although uh she's not really in it that much mm. um i also i much preferred the original pulse 8 kind yeah. of costume as well i i feel those were two slightly needless redesigns yeah agreed Particularly when these characters hadn't been in print. You know, it's not like they were like, oh man, we really need to like freshen up these designs. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we hadn't seen these dudes for a while. Exactly. In fact, we hadn't seen them for, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, uh, five years, six years maybe. 
Yeah. Yeah, no one else had used them, had they? It was literally no. just... I think they had cameos in the World War Three arc, but that was it. No, that's it. That's all you get. So, so yeah, they're, you know, all our regulars are back, plus a massively expanded cast of characters. Yeah. Um, the Ultramarine Corps went on a bit of a recruitment drive. Yes, they did. <laughs> I have to feel also, this has to be a slight, maybe not a direct comment, but like, yeah, this has to be a slight uh, oh, uh, reference to the authority as well. Yeah, probably. Like, another big series that was shaking up comics in kind of like late 90s, early 2000s. But like, yeah, a, a bunch of superheroes who killed and were answerable to no one. This is... This is kind of like a backdoor uh, uh, Authority versus JLA comic. Well, maybe that's why the Ultramarines haven't really appeared since, because DC have the Authority now, so... (sighs) Yes, indeed, yes. Well, 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 yes. Who knows what they... uh, They bought these characters and don't actually seem to know what they want to do with them. Well, no, no. Oh, and of course, we have also... There is also a backdoor JLA versus the Authority comic called... um, Oh, was it? Uh, what's so old-fashioned about truth, justice, and the American way? Which is oh super- yes, yeah. Superman versus the elite, which is their kind of um, thinly veiled reference to the authority. DC has sorry, so mouthful many th- of coffee. <laughs> oh, it's fine. DC has so many thinly veiled references to the authority. It's almost like they want to own the authority. Oh wait, they do actually own the authority. Wouldn't that be easier? Why don't they just fold the elite and the ultramarine corps into the authority? <laughs> Have this huge team, and the JLA just goes, "No, we can't." Hey, hey! If Morrison comes back and writes it, I'd be, I'd be on board with that. You know. <laughs> Anyhow, PJ. So, is that is that all the setup we need? Like to like this slight glimpse into Morrison's brain going into this. One more quick thing. I'm going Ooh, to do please. the credits now because it's not in the actual story. I think at this point, this was when comics would just the first page of the comic was just credits with no story on it. Is my sure. guess. So they're at the front of the trade, and then they don't appear in the stories themselves. I'm just going to quickly run through them for all three issues. Grant Morrison, writer, Ed McGuinness, pencils, Dexter Vines, inker, Dave McKay, colorist, Phil Balsman, letterer. There we go. There we go. Thank you, PJ. And and our first issue of is Island of the Mighty. Well, that title does appear in the main story, so I don't understand why the credits don't. But there we go. That's comics in the early 2000s for you. I mean, if you can pack in a, one more panel of artwork, then, you know, <laughs> that's what it's all there for, PJ. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, you know, it's the year is January, well, the year is 2005, it's January, it's a new year, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new era, PJ, Morrison's back, and Woo-hoo. you go, you know what, I'm going to go pick up a JLA title. And so we open on Superbia. Yeah, which is just like a massive floating city in the sky. Uh, yes, with... Um, <clears throat> Again, like the Ultramarine Corps, but not as you know them. Um, the first line of dialogue, if you can call it that, goes to um, a kind of a new character, G- Goraiko, I mm. believe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I have no idea how that's pronounced, so I will say you've done it right. Who is kind of like, at least, because bearing in mind that we know nothing about this character, apart from one little panel, um, they appear to be a kind of, I think they're described as such, like a kind of giant atomic sumo wrestler kind of being yeah yeah Yeah. he seems to talk in equations and i i have to think pj that this is maybe a slight reference to um 
a character from Stormwatch. Did you did you read any Stormwatch? I didn't know. Well, when Stormwatch kind of became borderline relevant when uh, Warren Ellis took over, um, they did some really interesting things with 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 the team, and it was kind of like one of the first iterations of like a kind of military controlled superhero team. And they had a character which, for the life of me, I can't remember their name now. But they were like a a Japanese atomic kind of powerhouse superhero, super sumo wrestlery kind of guy. Oh, okay. Which kind of which kind of feels like a slight reference to that, although I could be mistaken. I will take your word for it. Thank you, PJ. But hey, the JLA are missing. What? So they, this looks like a job. This looks like a job for the Ultramarine Corps. But what is the job? There's some terrorists. Who are apparently, quite literally, animals. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, so I mean we get Warmaker One uh dives off Superbia with a cocky who needs for Justice League, which is one of those kind of Morrison like, you know, hey, I'm back, but also I'm not giving you what you want. I'm never <laughs> giving you what you want. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a title as well, doesn't it? Who needs the Justice League? And also, I guess in a post uh a post kind of 9-11 world shock and awe is mentioned yeah 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 he says shock and awe gentlemen and then just sort of starts blasting calls knight and says you're clear to go you and jack are in charge of getting the hostages out and then knight just zooms in on his motorbike which is a very cool shot yeah and a kind of you'd be forgiven for missing it but he's also accompanied by lots of tiny remote controlled spitfire planes yes yes that's the general jumbo of it all isn't it <laughs> That's a good title for a comic, the general jumbo of it all. <laughs> um but yeah, as as you know, you know, the kind of heavy hitters on the team, uh so that would be Warmaker One and Goraiko basically just kind of rain fire from the sky, like kind of death from above. And Goraiko has progressed from kind of quoting algebra to effectively quoting almost haikus, really. Yeah. Yeah, was it as as a flower opens to the sun? So Goraiko's wrath. Oh, we don't get the third line. Unless it continues on the following page, but it doesn't quite fit the... Oh, it's uh, not a haiku. No, that's no. too many syllable. I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe, they're quoting something else. It reads, it reads quite nicely, though, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, PJ, and here's another new character. It's Jack-O-Lantern. Yeah, who's just sort of flipping around and throwing... Not pumpkin bombs. Those are trademarked. <laughs> Definitely not a goblin-esque character. No, not at all. Not at not all. At this all. this guy doesn't have a glider. Now, and we've got to say, we we don't know a colossal amount about Jack-O-Lantern, but no. I, I do believe he was originally connected to the Global Guardians, I think. Okay. Who are very, very, who are very much like a, a an international kind of rainbow of superheroes. So yeah. to speak, like a representative from every country. Yeah. Um, but hey, PJ, this is what you do when you've got a massive team and they're all, all of differing power levels. The the super strong ones start, I don't know, blowing up things from on high. And, uh, you know, the live kind of vigilantes of the night start kind of going through corridors and doing it mano a mano. Yep. Yep. And we do see that some of these terrorists that Jack-O-Lantern is taking out do look vaguely animalistic. Yes, indeed. It's funny that. But, you know, they're also wearing kind of like, you know, um, nice skin tight costumes as well, which I have to assume would be quite uncomfortable if you were an animal and actually furry. 
<laughs> Probably. Uh, but uh, to complicate matters, uh, Jack O'Lantern is looking for the hostages, but what he actually finds, PJ, well, um, this is I've seen this before, PJ. This is quite familiar to me. I I I recognised it. I did recognise it, but uh, we'll we'll get to that. Well, he's 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 found a he's found an object, and it's a bit it's a bit untoward, shall we say? Yeah, vaguely cube shaped, sort of <laughs> starry. Yeah, kind of like just like you know, like contains multitudes that sort of thing. <laughs> but then uh, Warmaker One blasts his way into the uh, into a room, and there seems to be a gorilla in there. Hmm. Maybe maybe it was like just natural fauna that happened to be there. <laughs> the natural gorillas of this particular wherever they are. Um, but hey, so like uh, you know. But it becomes clear that the Ultramarine Corps don't entirely know who they're fighting, basically. But um, on the ground level, uh, you know, Knight, he's not alone because he's got support from uh, Squire, who is currently in uh, the kind of superbia, well, I don't know, call it the Monitor Womb or whatever, and yeah. is um, doing research, you know, basically. Yeah, she's the eyes in the skies. And she talks, uh, she's definitely got a, a kind of uh, uh, a, a British accent, shall we say. <laughs> well, yeah, her and Squire both very much comics, American comics version of a British accent, because Morrison knows what they're writing for. I also know, I, I also remember uh, reading a great letter sent into a comic after um, Morrison's uh, concluding storyline on New X-Men, yeah. where um, there's a, a Glaswegian whale. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, someone says, "I'm so tired of these American writers like doing, doing fake Scottish accents." And I'm like, "Oh well." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think Morrison gets a pass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, but the Squire is is monitoring things, and she says, "Ah, we'll uh, we're looking up the villain database, uh, see who we're dealing with." As a hulking figure, is sort of seen. I think that's a a, a night's eye view. As he sends the Spitfires in. Indeed, indeed. And Squire asks Goraiko how he's doing, and Goraiko seems to be uh, incinerating some monkeys. <laughs> the bones of bad monkeys. <laughs> and I think uh, my chemistry is a little uh, a little rusty, but I think uh, the equation that Goraiko is, is, is stating is the decay of uranium into thorium and helium, I think. I'll take your word for it. So I think they're doing some kind of um, uh, radioactive decomposition to basically fry some monkeys. Now, PJ, why would Garaiko be so angry at these gorillas? Because they're the bad guys. Oh, well, we don't know that for sure. <laughs> no, we do, because the knight has arrived at the main villain, and he's like, yeah, we, we don't need the database. I, I know who this is. Oh, God, why me? And he says, it's it's Grodd. And Squire shouts for him to get out of there because Grodd is next level villainy. How do you feel? What are your thoughts on Grodd, PJ? I love Grodd. Do you love? Do do you do you consider him a credible threat? Oh yeah, an ah. evil psychic gorilla. I mean, it sounds great on paper. I just I don't, I don't. Apart from this story, I don't think I've read uh, uh, much with Grodd actually as a as a villain. Uh, see, I'd read before this. There's a um uh, the one that really springs to mind is. Peter David's run on Supergirl in the '90s when okay. Supergirl was uh, was Matrix. The first in the first year of that, there's a story where a two part story I think with Grodd as the villain, 
where he takes control of Supergirl's mind. And, you know, so if he can do that, he's a credible threat. Cool. And 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 kind of um, physically imposing as yes. well. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that, um, I mean, kind of like a particularly unhinged um, version of Grodd here. Uh, yeah, who was who was holding uh, Jack O' Lantern up by his cape? Uh, it doesn't look it doesn't look very well. And um, apparently, if you're wondering what happened to all the hostages, um, Grodd ate them. Yeah, yeah. This, this is which is, and there's 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 blood pouring out of his nose and his mouth, and his speech bubbles are a weird pattern and color. And this this isn't the Grodd that we all know and loathe. I actually really like the lettering in this comic, yeah. and I, 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 I love. I love. It's very simple. It's very effective. But I love Grog's voice in this. Yes, same. But uh, Cyril, you know, he's he's not just for Night PJ. He's the Earl of Wardenshire. You know, yep. you know w- Wardenshire PJ. Yeah, that that famous British county. Yeah, and uh, you know he's had some ups, he's had some downs, so he's not going to be. He's you know he squandered the family fortune. He uh, he kind of clawed it back. Uh, he's not gonna he's not gonna be intimidated by a giant gorilla. No. So uh, he just points uh, points calmly points his gun at uh, at Grodd. Yeah, and he asks Jack how he's doing, and Jack says, "Well, I've I've only got three ribs left. The hairy buggers on PCP or something. <laughs> Put one of us out of our misery. You can't hate me this much." <laughs> And um, Knight smiles and says, uh, well, actually, I want to show you my expensive new toy. Uh, it's a microwave gun. Ever fancy seeing a two-ton gorilla being sick? It's always been a dream of mine. <laughs> and then he blasts, gorilla, uh, he, he blasts Grodd in the head. <laughs> and then he starts explaining the science because Grodd's chucked Jack away. And then he's like, oh, oh, never mind, and helps Jack a lantern up and says, that's another point you owe me. And Grodd starts screaming words like die, scream, tear, all. He's he's about to rampage. Yeah, and, and his eyes are, are kind of flashing. So, you know, I'd I'd be frankly, I, I unless unless Knight's got some kind of like anti mind control stuff built into his helmet, maybe more on that later, um, I'd be a little alarmed at this point if you've got a psychic gorilla freaking out and potentially on PCP. Yeah. So Jack and Knight sort of get out of there on on Knight's uh, Knight's bike. Knight's bike. Knight bike. The night bike. Uh, and um, yeah, and uh, I think uh, Grodd might be on some kind of drugs because he's uh, he's he's having a great big screaming thing about how he's going to behead everyone and you know crush cities and eat your children. Uh, and as you know, Beryl kind of looks on via the spit cam. No Spitfire cams. Yeah. Uh, she's like, oh heck, you know, I hope you know what you're up against. This isn't some small fry like that guy, the gorilla gangster you and your dad locked up back in the day. Yeah, and then th- I think this is quite uh, an important detail. Apparently Grodd ranks number three on the global most wanted list with no less than 18 serious attempts to terminate all traces of human existence. I, uh, I have a feeling that like Morrison will never write anything that bores them. No. And I think even if Morrison was like, oh, I'd like to do an Ultramarine core story. Oh, but I'm going to make it a little different. And they were like, oh, I'd love to have Grodd as the villain. But also like, I want to make it a little different. So yeah. let's just have Grodd be like absolutely raging on drugs or something. Yeah. <laughs> He's scary. He's scary in this. It is a proper scary Grodd. Yeah. 
and and you know and 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 Beryl's like you know you'll have to watch out for his mind control powers but uh you know Cyril being uh you know, ever, ever calm. It's like, well, I'm too stubborn to be mind controlled and Jack's too stupid. So, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, right, what's up? And then he just leaps off the building on his bike and says, would someone like to catch us before we go splat? And Pulsate just is going, oh, what would you do without me? And taps on a computer, because I assume Pulsate is still in Superbia, with Glob, who used to be Flo, didn't he? I mean... Is he still called Flo? He's called Flo in the in the kind of intro. Yeah. You're ever loving Glob in the... Ra- I don't know who he is. Maybe anymore. he's just doing a funny... The big know. water guy. Yeah. And also, like, it's one of those... You know, the intro refers to these characters by their original names. Um, it's never actually confirmed one way or another. Like, you know, here's the thing. Is Pulsate still actually called Pulsate? Or is he called the Master? I don't know now. That's true. They keep we keep referring him to the mask, referring to him as the mask, but it yeah. could be uh could be just a fun nickname. Yeah, uh, but he's basically editing reality so that the bike with both passengers weighs less than a soap bubble for the next thirty five seconds to get them to the ground. Now, again, I loved Pulse Eight back in the day, mm. even though he, he didn't have a lot of he didn't make a lot of appearances even in his long story uh but he was originally connected to the unified field harmonic so Mm. he can control the four fundamental forces of the universe we see him do gravity we see him do electromagnetism clearly his powers have evolved since then yeah and uh clearly morrison just has a pathological hatred of boredom because it's like you know what i'm gonna completely redo this character and now they they they're literally an editor. They have an invisible keyboard and they can rewrite reality. <laughs> yeah. That's that's some power. It is very cool. I I I kinda love I kinda love everything about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um but uh, Pulsate calls to Warmaker One to say, well, let's take Grod out, and then Goraiko just leaps in and does just that. And a really, really fun, fun page here from Ed McInnes, like mm. um, the classic superhero Hulk kind of palm, palm clap, just kind of creating a shockwave, uh, messing with the panel borders. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And and Warmaker says, oh, uh, Garaiko's got Grodd. He flattened this whole city just to build his own monkey empire. There must be more to this. And... Pulsate says that Flo has said that there's something unusual, and Squire concurs that. She says uh, we're getting a JLA classified match on these mis- on those emissions Nebula Man files. Okay, okay, so we're back with the thing, the item, the MacGuffin that um, Jack found. Yeah. Right, PJ. Uh, do we want to talk about the infant universe of Qek? I think we're going to have to. We've talked about it before. Um, can you remember when it last appeared in the pages of JLA? Uh, now I know it's in the Wonder World stuff. Yes, is that nicely. the last time? Yes, nicely yeah. done. Ten points. Thank you. That's a no prize right there. Hmm. Wrong um, universe. Okay, so Morrison introduces the infinite universe of Qek. If we're pronouncing that right, PJ's good on fifth dimensional language. Uh, in 1997. Mm. It then turns up here in 2005. 
Yeah. PJ, when did All-Star Superman come out? Around the same time? Yeah, I think it did. Because, now, continuity be damned, All-Star Superman, as in the All-Star Superman, he creates the infant universe of Quebec as one of his 12 legendary labours. Well, isn't All-Star Superman a different continuity? It's not the mainstream Superman continuity. That is true. And yet... um, Superman Prime from DC One Million turns up in it. Yes. So I actually don't know. It's it's the Morrison timeline. I, yeah. I, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. Um. And the Nebula Man is a villain that was originally battled by the original Seven Soldiers of Victory back in the seventies okay. or eighties. I want to say. <laughs> um. <clears throat> this is all important, PJ. Yes. Okay. So, anyway, but, you know, this is 2005, you're a new reader, you're just here to see Superman. So, <laughs> let's just take it at face value. So, yeah, they, they don't know that it's the uh, infant universe of Quek. 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 I don't know. <laughs> Quek. Uh, and Warmaker says to Pulsate, I don't think you should use your quantum keyboard, and Pulsate's like, but I have to! <laughs> <laughs> Hubris. Hubris. Um... And, uh, well, I mean, at least we don't have to worry about Grodd anymore. Oh, no, wait. Actually, uh, Grodd's massive psychic powers can affect Goraiko, the giant atomic sumo wrestler. This is not good. Yeah, and he sort of just starts monologuing again. He's going to rebuild his empire here in the dirt. He burned Kinshasa, which I think is where we are. I guess so. So that its light would attract your shining city like a moth to a flame. And Warmaker 1 realises this is a trap. At the same time as Pulsate says this this thing, this cube, that they don't know what it is, is intelligent. And then all the power goes out in Superbia. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is cursed with awesome or blessed with suck. But um, there are a couple of tropes on TV tropes that refer to the, for example, Helicarrier from Marvel as being a phenomenally cool idea which is forever falling out of the sky. Yeah. (laughs) So having a floating city sounds great right up until the power goes out. Um, So now we have a big problem. (laughs) Yeah, we do. And Jack is shocked and he's like, what's going on? And the knight says it was a massive EMP detonation. It's also taken out his visor. Uh, And he calls Squire and just shouts superbia. And Flo, who seems to be controlling Superbia with his wetness. <laughs> his wet works, PJ. His wet works, there we go. Says that Superbia is going down. And I really like this. It's a fun touch. Uh, not because of a weapon that Grodd developed, but because Grodd took over Garaiko's mind and caused Garaiko to have a... Well, basically, Garaiko's incredible atomic heart skipped a beat, and that created an electromagnetic pulse. Yeah. I... I love this. I mean, I don't love the fact that now a city is about to fall on another city, but like, that's just a really fun detail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Jack talks about the thing. He saw the cube and Knight says, well, the other members of the team are still asleep, Olympian and Vixen. We thought this was going to be easy, in and out. So Squire starts running through Superbia to escape, shouting for Glob and 4D. And Pulsate seems to be getting sucked in to the cube. Uh, he says, a manifold absorbing me flat. I'm gone and it grows in a me grows in me a seed. 
information sent backwards through time while Squire's just shouting, bloody hell, bloody hell, bloody <laughs> hell, bloody hell, <laughs> apples and pears. <laughs> and then while, Stone the crows. <laughs> and then, yeah, just a page of pure and utter, you know, badness because Pulsate has been sucked into the cube Grodd is literally tearing Warmaker 1 in half and Superbia is crashing into the ground. At least, PJ, Superbia seems to be quite well made. because it, <laughs> it, 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 I can't say the same for Kinshasa, but like it, it seems to still be in one piece. Yeah. <laughs> and we said, we're told this is November 18th, 1.15am. Yeah. Um... So, PJ, I've been enjoying this uh, this issue of Ultramarine Corps so far. Uh, but hey, we have a cameo appearance from a Justice League character. Oh, really? That's a bit surprising, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I wasn't expecting that. So, that was 1.15am. Uh, a mere a mere 10 minutes later, we cut to the Batcave. Yeah, and Batman is just sat there brooding not doing anything and alfred walks up with a with it's the bat phone from the 60s tv series but he just calls it the hotline but it's totally the bat phone god love it and and i i love this little interaction because batman just picks up the phone and you don't hear who he's talking to but he's like how do you get this number (laughs) like seriously he's like oh okay so i gave it to someone okay okay you understand that i don't exist officially Grod, you say? No, don't worry. Stay right where you are. <laughs> and I love that the main panel is the one of Batman and Alfred in the cave, and then all these little panels of Batman on the phone are bat symbol shaped. Yeah, like I'm impressed. Like I, I always knew Ed Ed McGuinness's artwork, but like I didn't really, you know, kind of I, I didn't really have him pegged for doing like fun layouts and stuff like that. But this is really fun. That's oh yeah, no, McGuinness is having a lot of fun, isn't he? Yeah, this is great. <laughs> and then Batman fills Alfred in. He's like, "Do you remember uh, the Earl of Wardenshire, the English Batman? His son replaced him when he was murdered by his arch enemy, Springheeled Jack, the evil black sheep of the royal family." <laughs> he says, "Don't you keep up with this stuff?" And Alfred just says, "I prefer online shopping." <laughs> the um, and also PJ, if uh, just to slightly expand upon that, uh, another factor in the death of the original knight was uh as covered in batman the black glove mm. the knight discovered that jonathan mayhew who was the wealthy billionaire who assembled the batman of many nations or the international club of heroes uh may have killed his wife and covered it up and in trying to expose mayhew uh, basically, uh, he was ridiculed and threatened with extensive lawsuits, which Cyril reckons caused him to lose his confidence and lose him lose his edge, which eventually led to him being uh, killed by Springheeled Jack, who forced him to swallow a bomb. It's a lot. Uh, Cyril fell off the rails, uh, went on a massive bender, um, blew the family fortune, ended up in a gutter, Whereupon he was found by Beryl and her mom, and thus began a relationship which led to the modern day Nighting Squire. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You're listening to the Nighting Squire cast. 
Wow. <laughs> and this is all Morrison. All Morrison. All, all Morrison, Morrison baby. which is amazing to me, but it's so cool. And again, uh, Alfred's little dialogue here, he goes, well, you know, after going, I prefer online shopping, sir. Having said that, I do still send Christmas cards to the surviving members of the Club of Heroes, including young Sir Cyril. Yeah. And then Batman says, I just spoke to his partner, the new squire. And then the line I love, I'm opening the sci-fi closet, Alfred. Don't tell my friends in the GCPD about this. An acknowledgement that Batman walks in a couple of different worlds. And I guess also kind of something that's touched upon in Morrison's later run on... uh on Batman, where they talk about the black case book mm. and all the weird stuff that he'd actually, he'd rather just be dealing with muggers and thieves. So anytime something supernatural comes up, they just file it away, put it in a cupboard and don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he opens this cupboard and it's got some a load of weird stuff in it, including apparently Hawkman's wings and a Dalek. And I believe the Iron Giant's head? Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and also a a gun which kind of looks a hell of a lot like the the gun from Final Crisis. Yeah, it's got like an atom design on it in that circle above mm. the handle. Hey, if that is a reference to something in particular or just something cool that Ed McGuinness drew, I, I do not know. No, I'm not 100% sure. It does look vaguely familiar, but my brain is not pulling that information out today. Uh, but yeah, so um, Batman's going to the dark side, basically. <laughs> yeah. He's going sci-fi. Yeah. He says, I have a feeling things are about to get strange. And Alfred says, oh dear, I take it your flamboyant allies in the Justice League are indisposed. And Batman says, they got lost saving somebody else's universe. Typical. Did my flying saucer arrive from the factory? As he puts on a big Jack Kirby glove. Morrison's having fun here. Yeah, so's McGuinness. <laughs> um, so, uh, the Ultramarine Corps have been defeated. Uh, oh, we, well. cut, we cut to the fallen Superbia, where Grodd is uh, having a conversation with someone. Uh, he says they're going to get Superbia kind of airborne again, and then he's going to send his mind-controlled supermen out across the world like great hammers of wrath, basically. He's yeah. Gonna, he's gonna wipe humanity off the face of the planet. Uh yeah. Burn out the last traces of the human cancer civilization. And then Pulse 8 is stood with him, apparently. But his speech bubbles have changed now, and his eyes are crackling weirdly. Yes, PJ. Um Morrison's unstoppable rampage continues. Um This is no longer Pulse 8. Something is possessing him. It is Nebula. Neb- Nebula. Nebulo. Nebula. Uh, the, cosmic, the cosmic huntsman. Uh, yeah. Who appears to be aiding Grodd for some reason. Yeah. I love the bit where he says, look, I have expanded to fill this human's shape. As if he wants Grodd to be impressed. I, uh, you know, <laughs> it's give just me, a fun me, little give, bit. Give me a merit. Give me give me a monkey, monkey merit. That's all yeah. I want. Yeah. And then he talks about how his country is in the cold region of the vampire sun. He was born of the eternal fogs in the last country. Nebulo the Huntsman, master of the wild ride, to prepare the way for the Queen of Terror who will come soon. And he will spread at her feet a carpet of skulls. He is of the other world. He heralds the end of this one. Now let us make weapons of these supermen. That's a hell of a resume. 
Uh, it certainly is. And uh, paves the way for another Morrison series called The Seven Soldiers of Victory. Yep. Uh, which... Which is again? I just can't believe Morrison was allowed to do this. This is the, this is bridging a storyline that, completely independent of title or character, Morrison is writing across multiple books over the course of a decade. Yeah, <laughs> I think insane. it's why it didn't work out so well for them at, at Marvel. DC pretty much gave them free reign, but Marvel were trying to constrain them a bit more. Mm. So I think that's why you just get that one new X Men run, and then they're done. Do you think that DC willingly gave Morrison the keys to the kingdom or did Morrison like slip into DC headquarters and they've never been able to catch them? <laughs> just you know like just like sent a, scripts out to artists without telling anyone and then I like a kind of rat in the walls. I, I like to imagine that Morrison is crawling through the vents and will just occasionally like drop a script through a hatch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're living in the walls. <laughs> They're living in the walls. Morrison's in the walls. Run. <laughs> um, but hey, um, they're not all uh, atomic superheroes, PJ. Uh, some of them are just, um, you know, a resourceful girl uh, in, a, in an incredible costume riding a flying hover bike. I'm, I'm going to say a sentence now that I don't think I'd ever <laughs> have gotten to say before if we hadn't done this podcast, and I am thankful for that. Okay. The squire is trying to escape on her flying motorbike, being chased by jetpack-wielding gorillas who also have laser guns. Um, Beryl is is shot through the, soldier, uh, the, the shoulder with a laser and is going to die because she is plummeting from thousands of feet above the earth and um, very quietly utters a, a prayer. Please, God, if you save me, I'll never swear again. And then who turns up to catch her on his vaguely bat-shaped flying saucer? It's Batman. <laughs> who says, uh, yep, the laser has cauterized your wound quite nicely. Get in. I love this actual little panel of just Batman, like, right, pointing with his thumb towards the, the chair. And yeah, it's just so kind of nonchalant. <laughs> and she and he says, "Ignore the wobble. Gyroscope's useless in hover mode. You ever flown in one of these before?" And she says, "Oh yeah, every day." By the way, there's killer jet apes behind us. <laughs> and um, Batman's evolving as a character. PJ, uh, he's not the same Batman he was a few years earlier in the Morrison run. So rather than going, huh, which is H H, he's now. H-I-H, which I have to imagine is like a kind of... Hi, hmm. here. Hmm. <laughs> kind of noise. <laughs> and uh, Batman's got a big Jack Kirby glove. And uh, it's a boom tube gauntlet. So, goodbye, Kinshasa. Um, hello, uh, the orbit of Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it looked all Kirby, because it's a boom tube Oh no. Device. oh no, it's gone cosmic, PJ. It's gone cosmic. <laughs> it has gone cosmic. And I've, they're on Pluto and he's just like, yeah, JLA Remote Lab, I think fast and I work fast. Can you keep up? And she's like, bloody right, I can, after working with him indoors. And Batman is like, again, Batman doesn't suffer fools. Um, I think as he said in right back at the start of New World Order, like, he can't afford to risk his life by, I don't know, trusting in less well-trained people than him. Yeah, yeah. So you know that when Batman trusts you, he thinks highly of you. Yeah. So Beryl is getting one hell of a promotion here, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then he says that basically he's prepared and this had to happen in the end. A terrorist would going to hijack a super team and turn them into a weapon. It was a JLA case waiting to happen. And this, to me, almost harks back to the Mark Wade run on JLA. Mm. I feel like Morrison was paying attention to what was going on there, that Batman is prepared for every eventuality. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and this would be, I mean, canonically, this would be post-Tower of Babel, wouldn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. Like, yeah, this is this is a yes. Well, this is a Batman who's had had his plans thwarted in the past. So you know. I I think this this came after Wade had finished his run on JLA. Yes, it would have done. Yeah. yeah. Oh, massively. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And um, you know, BJ, it's really stupid. I, I I've read this comic so many times, but I think this is the first time I've ever actually just tweaked to the fact that they have a second universe of Quebec or a second portal to it right here yeah That's i don't know why i never strange. picked up on that before hmm interesting because yeah, yeah J- batman says that the jla are inside the infant universe of Quebec. yes indeed uh and um you know beryl keeps going like you know slow down please what pluto like slow down and he goes wait batman like slow down are you really batman and batman goes no i'm goldfish man can't you tell <laughs> that's the evolution of batman he's cracking jokes now i this is the thing like i batman particularly under morrison isn't always dour like he has a kind of dark sense of humor well, i think it's the same i think there's again i think there's elements of his characterization from the animated series creeping in, like right oh. back from the beginning of Batman, the animated series, all through Justice League, there's a slight bit of sarcasm and dark humor in there, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, no, 100%. Like he's, yeah, he's not, you know, you can be a brooding figure of the night and also kind of have, I don't know, be a human every now and then. He's a balanced character. Yeah, like I always two one two that always spring to mind is the in the animated shows is the first meeting with Superman in Superman the animated series where they're raiding one of Lex's bases <laughs> and Superman's like, Oh, he's he's lined it with lead, my X ray vision can't get through and Batman just says, Well, there's always the direct approach and Superman punches the door in and Batman just goes, You're learning <laughs> And then the one in the Justice League three part of the Thanagarian invasion where he's crash landing in the SAS I says, I could do with a rescue since I can't fly at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's that Batman. It, it it kind of goes back to um I think something Morrison said. And 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 now Morrison's lived a life. Uh, Morrison got very wealthy off the back of Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth. Yeah. Morrison traveled the world and did a lot of experimental drugs. Um, Morrison's point that, like, if Batman is someone who's meant to have, like, mastered the body and mastered the mind, become a Zen master, gone through Reikian therapy, like, Morrison themselves has been through Reikian therapy and is like, I think Batman would probably be over a lot of the trauma mm. on some level. Like, um, he's driven. You know, he wants to kind of like help people and make a difference. But like he has processed his fear and his hurt in quite a kind of positive light in Morrison's eyes. So like I don't think Morrison's ever really enjoyed writing like a a tormented Batman. Their Batman is very lean and direct. Yeah, it's I, I like the idea that I can't remember who it was that said Batman is it might have been Morrison. Batman isn't driven by vengeance. He will tell people he is. He is vengeance. He is the knight. 
but he's actually driven by a desire to stop other people going through what he had to. A hundred percent. Like he's he, he's he's a working professional. You know, I yeah. don't think he could be quite as good as he as he is if he was like really hanging on by a thread. At yeah, the moment. which doesn't mean that he's you know he doesn't care about the death of his parents anymore. Obviously, that is the reason and and affects him greatly. But he's not traumatized by it in the way that a lot of people think. No, no, quite. And um, I, I, you know, and I, I think I think some of their interactions with Beryl are absolutely lovely. You know, uh, and I and, and continued in in some of Morrison's later uh, Batman stuff where they cross over. Um, and uh, that's actually I, I love these little moments of humanity. There's a there's a great moment in the black glove, uh, sorry, the black glove storyline where Batman reintroduces the um, sorry where Morrison reintroduces the Batman of many nations. They all meet up on an island. It's a great little story, and um, Robin. Uh, kind of Tim Drake is a little kind of dismissive of these like kind of rip off Batman and Batman's like you're being unkind you know they're very respected heroes in their own in their own countries and um, you get the impression that Batman actually really likes Cyril like they seem to you know kind of have like quite a kind of casual laid-back relationship and um and also Robin Robin says to Cheryl uh, to to Beryl oh Batman speaks very highly of you hmm which I was like, oh, that's lovely. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he says here, and I think this is one of the reasons he thinks fondly of Cyril as well. He says, I remember when he was the squire. And I think it's that whole legacy thing that Batman understands. He's obviously seen it with the Flash. He's briefly already at this point had Dick Grayson take over as as Batman. And he's probably very aware that if something happens to him, that is what's going to happen in the future. Spoilers. It does. It does, and and again, there's a there's another great moment where Dick Grayson as Batman and the Knight are having a little interaction post Bruce Wayne's supposed death, and um, it's lovely because Cyril goes like, "Oh man, I was terrified of you as a kid. Like you were like this insane circus boy who was like always cracking jokes and backflipping over stuff." And uh, and Tim and, and uh, Dick's like, yeah, and you were like this spoiled rich kid who uh, had a few karate lessons and copied my act. And Cyril's like, yeah, yeah, totally, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just nice. It just seems like an easygoing, easygoing couple of heroes. Hmm. Oh, but yeah, Batman says, I've read your file. You're a communications expert. And she says, well, yeah, I don't want the gorilla hurting. Cyril, he's been through a lot. And why are we on Pluto? And Batman says, if you can reach me in the Batcave, you can reach the JLA in the Infinite Universe. Now that is a slight stretch to me, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not Batman. <laughs> I, I I, mean, maybe there's an established phone line going into the Infinite Universe of QEC. I don't know. <laughs> he says, you need to talk to it and find them. And while you're doing that... It's up to me to make sure no one suspects the League are missing as he walks into a room and we see a bunch of robot Superman's men's. That's super- yeah, because, like, I it's another small detail, but I love it. But, like, why, why invent new robots when you have a bunch of proven robots kind of just lying around? Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's the end of the issue. That's it. That's the end. Um, you know, this this epic crossover of Batman and the Ultramarine Corps. <laughs> it's it's fun, isn't it? Because it's the, this story is a slow build to the JLA. 
and and I like that, and I feel like Morrison has earned that with their previous work on the team. So you know that the moment you get the actual full JLA appearing, it's going to be a punch the air moment. I, uh, yeah, no, a hundred percent, and I th- and I think it just goes back to one of Morrison's greatest strengths. I mean, like when they're when they're firing on all cylinders, like they never give people what they want. Yeah, you know, never give people what they they think they want. Always give them something unexpected. I think if I had one criticism of this issue, and it kind of connects back to something you were talking about at the beginning of this episode, mm. it's that the opening sequence of the Ultramarines going in and battling Grodd, I feel like is a little bit rushed. A lot happens in those opening pages. It settles down then once you get, once Batman appears in the issue and and the pace sort of gets a bit more manageable but i feel like it's that scattershot thing you were talking about earlier where oh interesting yeah. sometimes the reason i think some morrison stories don't quite work for me is because they're firing too many ideas at it at once and they want to do too much than the space will allow and maybe there's an, an element of not being reined in occasionally when they should be perhaps in my humble opinion and i think that it's not egregious it's just a small part of this issue where i'm like you probably could have lost one thing there no that's a really good that's a really no it's a really good point pj because i because i i agree i think like there i i in this instance and i I think it just comes down to like my personal kind of preference i in this instance i think it works but i but i think this is as you rightly say this is classic this is classic morrison kind of like i is it flexing is it showing off? I don't know. But like, you know, they'll often do throwaway moments of creativity, which could inspire like a whole book mm. in their own right. And so you're right. Like, w- could it have just been half the ideas or one idea and I, it would have worked quite as well? I think maybe just cut the jack o and stuff, perhaps. And then you've got a few more panels to play with to get give the rest of the team a chance to breathe. Because... It's not really clear what, at various points, Glob and Pulsate are doing. Mm. Um, and I just, and you know, you could cut Jack O'Lantern out of those scenes, have him be another one that Knight says is asleep, and you'd have a little bit more room to play with. In, again, just my opinion, and I know no, this no, one it... does work for a lot of people, but that is, yeah, that's my one small criticism of this issue. No, Otherwise, no, I love it. It's, it's a really fair point, and I think. Um, uh, Maybe if I was more scholarly, or I had I had more of a literary a literary backing to this, I could kind of put words to it. But like, I think Morrison does this a lot. Like, it's almost like a style of their writing to almost never explain anything, drop you right in the middle of stuff, and then always refer to stuff that's happened as kind of fact. And then you're kind of playing catch up. But when it works. You feel really smart, mm. and you feel like you're kind of along for the ride on something incredible. Um, I, think, I think it's when, why for me, and I have a lot of fondness for Morrison's Batman run overall. But I think it's why for me, both Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis miss the mark. Oh, because I feel like yeah. in both instances they don't feel like stories to me. They no. just feel like ideas being thrown and not really sticking. And the fact that within a couple of months, Batman died twice. <laughs> you know, so. I think 100%. that's hundred percent. Yeah, the rest not. of the rest of of Morrison's Batman run, I think I haven't read all of it, but the rest of what I have read, I think, is really good. Um, 
but Batman R.I.P. in particular, I'm a little bit like it left me cold. No, I, I, no, I agree exactly, PJ. And I was going to bring up Final Crisis as an example of when it doesn't work, because mm. I, you know, you can't fault the creativity. With no, creative- not at all. No, um, and, and I'm saying it, it's they're throwing a lot of ideas at things. They are all amazing ideas. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, a hundred percent. But I, I think like particularly in the opening, the opening issues of Final Crisis, when you know. Okay, you can go weird towards the end because that's your reward. Mm. But like, you need a grounding. You need something kind of like to, to to hold you and make you care. And like, it's 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 so much stuff happening so quickly. It's like kind of flickering. It's like a, a oh a zoetrope or something. It's like a lot of images kind of flickering before your eyes, kind of telling telling a story. But like, yeah, it it kind of leaves me a little cold because I'm, I can't connect with these these characters. I think it's also probably the same reason DC One Million was probably for us when we were looking at the main JLA book the weakest part. Mm. And I think I think the thing is when Morrison has an ongoing series to tell their stories, they've got the space to put all these ideas in. It's why JLA that run has some wild ideas in but each one is given the space to breathe and mm. form the backbone of a story with a couple of throwaway things in it here and there but when you've got things like Final Crisis or DC 1 million this JLA classified story to a lesser degree but they are finite series which have a small amount of space for all these ideas to fit in mm. You know, All Star Superman is brilliant, but that's a twelve issue series. There's plenty of space for that to breathe. So, yeah, it's yeah. No, I I I I agree entirely, and it's a it's a trap that um, I know I've fallen into. Yeah. In, in in kind of writing, where like you want to kind of dazzle, you want to kind of like be very very clever. <laughs> you know, I want to I want I want to be the cleverest boy in the room, but there's a but there's a reason why standard a to b to c storytelling has persisted for so long like it gives you a very solid grounding to connect the reader and and, and so they don't feel adrift in a kind of postmodern <laughs> postmodern explosion of creativity yeah um one thing i will say pj and to use final crisis as, as an example you know morrison returning to the justice league and returning to well we don't see much from here but in Final Crisis, I think I remember you saying that, like, even though Morrison was writing the Justice League, you didn't feel that it, it felt like the same Justice League? It didn't quite feel like the same characters to you? Do you- I th- yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that for me is that, if I remember correctly, in the very first issue, Morrison killed Jean. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And for me, that was like Morrison just tearing up their JLA. Oh, God. And you're right, PJ. And and, and what an... Ex- what- an example of like a moment that should have had like the most colossal weight to it mm. given Morrison's legacy with that character and it's kind of like done in like a page and a half yeah yeah I feel like this feels more like Morrison's JLA to me yes. even though we've only seen Batman it feels like a continuation of the same Batman yes. we saw in JLA exactly exactly yes and um, I think to, to go back as well it's one of the reasons Earth 1 works so well is because Again, it takes one idea that they hadn't used in the main JLA series, but again, gives it the room to breathe. But they were still writing JLA at the same time. Mm. So this this book, it almost feels like 
is this an idea they had back when they first did the Ultramarines, but then they left the book? So when JLA Classified came up, they were like, oh, great, I can do this this other thing I wanted to do on the book. It does feel a bit to me like that might be the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder when some of these ideas for Seven Soldiers of Victory began. Mm. Because now, again, if I have a criticism, I I love this. I actually really, really like this story, and I've enjoyed yeah. this issue tremendously. It rewards the, the Morrison nerds out there who are willing to follow these plot lines. Like yes. Seven Soldiers of Victory, again, it's, 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 it's less of a coherent story by its very format because it's mm. told across multiple titles. But, you know, there's a lot I like in it. And that's the conclusion to this storyline. And I'm just thinking, like, if you're a regular reader and you just want more Morrison-contained fun, do you feel dissatisfied or intrigued by the intrusion of like say nebula you know uh, knowing that ultimately spoilers that's not going to really get resolved in this storyline yeah true now it's it's great for me (laughs) it's maybe great for us because we are those kind of nerds who might actually do a podcast about morrison but like yeah i don't know i wonder how a regular reader would feel yeah yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I was a regular reader back in the day who wasn't really reading all of the the Morrison oeuvre, as it were. And I do remember this being slightly disappointed that when this first came out and I was reading it as monthly issues, that it didn't feel like exactly the same. You know, it wasn't like the issue after World War Three. you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean... It's annoying. It's, it's it's like you can never go home again, can you? No. Um, Morrison's a different person. I feel that like even in two thousand and five or four, coming back to these characters, there, I I almost feel like there's there was a bit like kind of like like it's like Morrison. Hey, Morrison, it's me, Mister DC. We want you to come back and write JLA for like a three parter, just to kickstart our new series. And I feel like Morrison would like agree on condition that they get to do whatever they want, you know, because I imagine if, 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 if editorial were like, you have to have the main justice league in it all the time. Yeah. Morrison ha- having clout might be like, well, no, actually that doesn't excite me. I kind of told, did everything I wanted to with those characters. I feel like this is a Morrison who has been burned by their experience at Marvel. Whew, um, yes. Something that they were, you know, X-Men. Oh, I get to write X-Men. Amazing. Brilliant. And then, editorial interference and problems so they go back to dc dc welcomes them with open arms and basically gives them carte blanche to do whatever they want fine indeed yeah yeah i i it's funny it's funny like um yeah i I, i'm i you know for me i think i said this last episode i'm i'm very glad this story exists because i discovered it much later after reading jla so it was kind of like a, a nice surprise to be able to dip back into that world and mm. go, oh, yeah, no, like, you know, Morrison's back and it, it's it's like everything's wonderful again. Um, and I, I, I and I enjoyed this like revisit to these characters and I actually really enjoy my time with the Ultramarine Corps here, oddly yeah. enough. Yeah, particularly Knight and Squire. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I don't know whether it's just because I've been infected by Morrison's affection for these characters, but like... 
yeah, I, I would, I would frankly just if if the Justice League didn't even turn up and we just had more of these characters, I'd be, uh, I'd be quite happy. <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing more of the Ultramarines, like the especially the ones we haven't really seen in the next next part. Because I know 4D does show up and. Mm. Good, because I feel like the the original Ultramarines do need a bit of res- bit more respect. <laughs> I think so, and it's yeah, and, and again, it's funny. Like I, I think Morrison's having fun here, yeah. and I think I think ultimately that's why it kind of shines for me. I think you can tell when Morrison, their heart isn't a hundred percent in it, and yeah, I think I think you know whether it's a JLA book or an Ultramarine book or a Night Squire book, like whatever this is, I think Morrison's only doing it because they can entertain themselves. And, you know, you know, we just get to come along for the ride, really. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm very excited to get to parts two and three of this. I really am. Me too. Yeah, I'm having a, I'm having a great old time. Mm. Um, hey, hey, PJ, actually, maybe this is a good time just to bring up something which uh, Chris the Monitor Murphy yes. has written in. Yes. Uh, Hi, Chris. So- <laughs> Hello, Chris. Always just a massive treasure trove of knowledge. It really is astonishing. Um, now, this is just to touch upon some of the weird mm, kind of Morrisonian knowledge and legacy here, but also mm. kind of like the the stuff that Morrison would just dip into and reference and cross-reference. But we've mentioned it a lot, the uh, the kind of the Club of Heroes slash the Batman of Many Nations that, that, that Morrison really brought back for their batman run but was was a was a 50s idea pj certainly golden age yeah yeah 50s yeah yeah so and and, uh predated the green arrows of many nations by a couple of years yep by a couple of years (laughs) there we go where where do they come check out those old jack kirby green arrow comics they are bonkers and i love them well uh, and, and until the day that Morrison jumps on a Green Arrow series and, <laughs> and does the exact same thing, um, Chris wanted to bring our attention to um, a post-crisis, pre-Morrison appearance of the Batman of Many Nations slash C- Club of Heroes, which Chris reckons may have been like all but forgotten. Now, the question is, was it forgotten by Morrison? Well. <laughs> well. So uh, this... we. This uh, we look at Infinity Inc. issue thirty-four from January nineteen eighty-seven. So, PJ, what can you tell us about Infinity Inc.? Not a lot. Uh they are the children of a lot of JSA heroes. Is that right? I, I genuinely don't really know. I'm afraid. <laughs> I I think I, I I'm probably gonna get this horribly wrong. I think that's the case. You've got like Obsidian. And Jade and Nuclon, everyone's favourite Nuclon, yep. is around. Anyway, so um, all I'm bringing up here is that um, a story written by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and illustrated by a young Todd McFarlane. That's crazy. Which is mad. Uh, basically establishes that the Club of Heroes were actually a World War II era underground group of costumed freedom fighters who were sponsored by the justice society and the all-star squadron and that after the war these various heroes were assembled under the dome which is a top secret international peacekeeping force and um apparently these were the forerunners for the global guardians Mm. who we've been talking about a bit lately and who actually had a cameo in justice league year one Yes, they did. 
led by was it Doctor Doctor Misk? Am I being am I getting that right? Uh, I think you're getting that right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, uh, Chris rounds off again. I don't know, Chris. I don't know how you know this. I don't know how you hold hold this in your brain by uh, saying how many members of the Global Guardians, which was this kind of like international uh, Olympic kind of representative from every every country group of superheroes, go on to appear in this version of the Ultramarine Corps. Okay. So Olympian, Fleur de Ile, if I'm pronouncing that right, you know, <laughs> I, I think these were all members of the Global Guardians that Morrison is called upon. I mean, <laughs> of course they have. It is great, though. I had absolutely no idea that there'd been that appearance post-crisis, pre-Morrison. I, I genuinely thought it was a golden age thing Morrison brought back first. And I guess the question is, how... Can we afford to ignore the possibility that Morrison was aware of all this? No. I don't think anyone would. I, apart from Chris, the Monica Murphy, I don't think anyone would know as much about this kind of continent. Morrison, Morrison, Mark Wade, maybe Kurt Busiek, and Chris, the Monica Murphy. Throw them into a ring. Only one, only one can survive. <laughs> <laughs> Play Chavez. <laughs> um... PJ, have oh, thank you, thank you, Chris. Sorry, I should say thank you for incredible. Yes, email. no, thank you, thank you. We we do well, love it when you unearth these little nuggets for us. We always appreciate it. Um, uh, PJ, have we said everything there is to be said about this issue? Uh, yeah, until next time, I guess. Until next time, um, PJ. It's it's funny actually. Um, I was going to leap into the section where we say, "Is there anything to shout about?" Um, I do have something to shout about, which is kind of um, be well. Also, not in a way that anyone listening will be able to benefit from it. But speaking of Todd McFarlane, I'm doing another Petra Kucha this coming week. <laughs> Would you care to guess the subject matter? Uh, well, I'm going to guess it's something to do with Todd McFarlane. Uh, so, is it his Spider-Man work or Spawn or? Spawn. I'm going to mention. Is it Image Spawn. Comics? No, no. It's um, well, we've been talking about British comics a bit this issue. PJ. Okay. Why would Todd McFarlane have um, touched British comic history? This is something I know, and I'm not able to bring it to mind, and I'm getting frustrated. You're just going to put me out my misery and tell me. Miracle Man. That's it. Yep. I'm doing a so so um. If you are somehow in the Gloucester area in the UK and you would like to hear me try to explain the history of Miracle Man in six minutes and 40 seconds on stage. Oh, my uh, God. You can't do it. It, it, well, it I, can't I've, be done. <laughs> 20 slides, PJ. No it, text. It can't be done. Oh, it will be done. Something will be done. Someone needs to record this. I need to see it. Uh, I've already made... Uh, I've got, like I said, I've got 20 slides. I've built the slide which features Todd McFarling on the left, Neil Gaiman on the right, and the Street Fighter versus logo in the middle. Oh my god! This is my this is my contribution to comics history. Please get someone to record this. Please. I will try. I will try. It's, it's in a. It's in a. It's like it's not being professionally filmed. Maybe someone can hold up their camera. Yeah, I, I'll take it because you need to stick that on YouTube. <laughs> I will try. Um, PJ, um, do you have anything to shout about? Uh, no, not this week. Are you? I. I. What about your your many podding adventures? Oh well, measure of a fan. We've just released our first episode, looking at the at Discovery. Uh, so we're on to episode one hundred of that first episode of Star Trek Discovery. 
Wow. Um, <laughs> it's it's sporadic at the moment because editing around my baby is hard. But uh... <laughs> editing around your baby? What's your baby doing on that? Oh, sorry, that was a poor joke. I'm sorry. I'll let it go. Well, when I said on that podcast, editing with a baby, they went, "Well, why do you edit with a computer?" So there's no there's no way around these stupid jokes. Sadly. Um, well, you are a dad now, Peter. Yeah, exactly. So that is sporadic at the moment, uh, coming out every one, two, or three weeks. But it continues, and um, yeah, we've just started looking at Star Trek Discovery. Maybe check out our hundredth episode. It is quite a good jumping on point. It'd be a great opportunity to discover the measure of a fan. There we go. Thank there you, you John. There you You're better at this than I am. <laughs> oh, no, no, lies, lies. Hey, you, you hit 100 before we did. Well, we were weekly for quite a while, and then my baby turned up and we weren't anymore. But <laughs> oh, Curse for joys of parenthood. Right. I know, right? Um, well, I guess on that note, I should say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And uh, another massive thank you to my Measure of a Fan co-presenter, Elliot Red, for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. And uh, PJ, thank you. Thank you for persevering. With no, thank problems. you, John. No, thank you, PJ. Um, thank Grod for, <laughs> for, for us and, and all our listeners and Morrison. And PJ, if you would, could you please see us off in your own unique fashion? I have been mind-controlled by a gorilla. <laughs>